Good morning. I feel the need to congratulate you as those choice saints who made it to corporate worship on Labor Day weekend. And that's the first time I've ever gotten a woo. I'm glad you're proud of yourself as well. Uh, being that it is Labor Day weekend, um, this is the kind of weekend where most people, I know I prefer this, it's sort of a weekend where you're like, you know what, I'm going to unplug. I'm going to disconnect. I am, I'm going to just kind of turn my brain off. And so while this weekend may be a time for that, I urge you not to do that during corporate worship. Don't unplug. Don't turn your brain off. Don't, don't allow yourself to be distracted. Don't think too much about the barbecue you're going to eat later on today and how you're going to eat it again tonight, again in the morning, because you don't have to go to work. But really try to, to focus on, on what we're doing. I also want to welcome you if you're a visitor here, if this is your first time here. I know with our children's dedications, we have some family members that are in town. And um, also, I just know there's visitors every week, and so we want to make sure you know you're welcome. Um, you never know what to expect in, a, in your first time at a, at a church service in a new place. And so we opened with an announcement about a skeet shoot. You may be thinking, what kind of redneck, hillbilly congregation have I landed in? Or you may be thinking, I've reached home. <laughs> you know, who knows? Um, but there's, everyone comes from, from different things. Music styles are different. Preferences are different. Um, but I encourage you that this morning we're going to spend our time in the gospel. And Ephesians 4 says that we have unity in Christ. And so no matter if you're just here well, with family or if you're here visiting for the first time or if you've been here a long time, um, we have unity as a gift in Christ. And we're not called to create it. We're called to preserve it. And one of the ways we're going to preserve that unity this morning and enjoy it together is by going to the gospel. And so I'd like to pray and then we'll dive into the word. So let's pray together. Lord, we come to you now humbly and... Uh, just confess that we love you. This corporate gathering week in and week out is a gathering where we have this crazy privilege in Christ to hear from you and to, um, to know that our prayers and our worship is in fact being heard. And so, Lord, we, we count it a real privilege. This morning, my, my prayer, um, as it is for most Sunday mornings, is that there would be honesty, that there would be clarity as we talk about the gospel, I pray that you would stir in our hearts, whether we have been walking in the gospel for decades or whether it is something that someone here is still kicking around as a possibility. Uh, my prayer is that the gospel would be made clear this morning as we consider the book of Romans. Lord, we love you. We're humbled by the reality that you've given us this breathed out word of God, which is profitable for reproof, correction, and righteousness and training. Help us to be trained by it. Help us to be equipped by it this morning. Help me to be out of the way so that I can say what you want to be said in the way you want it to be said. Lord, your word tells us when we gather that we should um, pray for one another. We should pray uh, for local leaders. So um, I want to pray for our local government here in Greenville as they make decisions day in and day out about how to spend money and what things that will affect the way our city is. I pray that you would lead them in that. I pray that they would follow you in that. I pray that they would make decisions that are wise, they would be good stewards, and that they would um, keep the interest of the public in mind as they serve as public servants. I pray that you would encourage them in that work as well, and for those who are believers, that they would be salty and bright in that environment. We also pray for another local church, and particularly in these few weeks leading up to its launch, we want to pray for our church that we're planting in North Rockwall, we pray for Cross Point Community Church, Lord. Um, I am so thankful that they had a sweet initial meeting last week with, a, with members and had a sweet time of prayer as they prepare to launch next week. And our prayer is that that would be a healthy church uh, serving their community really well. I pray for Lance, for Kai, and for Ryan that they would be in a plurality that communicates well with, the, with one another and that submits to you and always goes to the word for the answers that they're looking for. Lord, we love you very much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Romans chapter 1, if you've not already turned there. At Crosspoint, we go verse-by-verse verse preaching. It's called expository or expositional preaching. And so Ben, is ben has been in Ephesians. Um, Brad has been in 1 Timothy. Um, I have just started Romans in June. And then when Ben gets back here in a couple weeks, he's going to go to Isaiah. 
And then the church plant is going to start in the book of Acts. And I just want to say up front, I'm really excited. I'm thankful that God's people are getting a lot of God's word and not just our thoughts and our opinions about things and culture and, you know, things online and whatever we saw on Facebook that we're not just preaching light fair, but we're going to the word. And so uh, we started this verse by verse preaching through the book of Romans with two sermons back in June. The first sermon was mainly context, and the second sermon explored what it means to be committed to the gospel. As we climb back into chapter 1, there's a few things that I think are necessary for us to review before we continue. Normally, I don't spend a whole lot of time on reviewing, but this is a new book. We spent two weeks here in June, and there's a lot of foundational and background realities. There's a, back, there's a background for Paul. There's a background for Rome. There's a background for the church in Rome. And so we're going to spend a few more minutes than normal this morning on the background because it will make sense of these first few verses in the book of Romans. So, so kind of make that journey with me, listen closely, and um, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll work hard to make sure we understand what we're reading because there is a background on all of it. Paul has never been to the church in Rome. Sometimes when we read these books, we think, oh, okay, the letter to the church and to the Roman church, we, we think of them sitting in Rome writing that letter. Well, he was not in Rome. In fact, he had never been to Rome. Rome was the biggest empire on planet Earth at the time, and the church was growing, and Paul really wanted to go there because he had never been there. So he's writing to them from a church in Corinth, which was a really messed up church. So he's serving a really messed up church, wanting to get to this really you know, thriving, growing church that he's heard about their faith and he's encouraged. But he does that through this letter saying, I want to come to you guys and, and, and be there. And it's written in AD 57. The beginning of the letter and the end of the letter reveal Paul's intentions. You know, when we're reading these, the, the Bible, all too often we, we read it and say, okay, what does this mean for me? And that's, you're jumping the gun. Anytime we read the Bible, we have to first just say, what is it saying? And understand what it's saying. You've got to have context. You've got to have background. You've got to know who the person is that's talking and know what went into them choosing the words that they chose that God would utilize in such a way throughout the ages. And then at the very end of the sermon, we'll get to the part about what does this mean for us. But we have to do the work, the legwork of understanding what did it mean when it was said? What was it saying to Rome, to the Romans, to the church in Rome? What was Paul dealing with? We have to dig deep or else it won't make any sense. We'll just be consumers who want it to figure out what it means for us quickly. So the beginning reveals his intentions and his hopes for the people of God in Rome. And so I used some visuals in my last uh, couple of sermons. Can you put that slide up there? And it seemed to go really well. So I'm just going to use the same visuals in this sermon. Not even new ones, just the same ones, because it went so well in the first sermon. So this is Paul's ambitions and intentions in the church. Sometimes it helps to, to see the list and to read it out loud. Because as I read this to you, and as you consider it, I hope you're going to kind of you know, take a deep breath and be like, wow, he, way to aim high, Paul. That, that's, that's a lot uh, to, to take on. But what he reveals just in the opening of his letter and the end of his letter is he wants to serve the worldly church in Corinth because that's where he's writing from. He wants to serve the poor Christians in Jerusalem because he once persecuted those Christians. And now he sees their plight and he wants to do everything he can now that he's one in Christ to help them. He wants to, he's not trying to right his wrongs as much as he is just do what's right because he's a follower of God now. In order to do that, he has to collect an offering from Macedonia and Achaia. Then he wants to strengthen and mutually encourage the church in Rome by going there and preaching and then also hearing from them while he's there because he has said in the opening of his letter, I have heard of your faith throughout the regions and I am encouraged. So he's saying, I want to come encourage you and I want you to encourage me. So there's a humility about Paul here, but he wants that to happen. It's on the top of his list of priorities. And eventually he wants to do that because he wants to continue gospel work in Spain. So he's going to go and pick up this offering and then go over here and see Rome because he wants to go and do gospel work in Spain. And right now he's in Corinth where they're fighting and getting drunk on the Lord's Supper. I mean, it's an insane thing that Paul is a part of. In order to do this, in order for um, one of the goals he, he has with the church in Rome is to reconcile the differences between the Jews and Gentiles. Now, if we had the KKK on this side of the room and the Black Panthers on this side of the room, the differences that exist between the two of them would not be as great as the differences that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. 
I use that illustration on purpose because we have a history in our community of racial issues. And so that's probably familiar to you say, whoa, I don't want to be in the same room as those two groups of people. Well, Jews and Gentiles were even more different than those who are maybe the most different in our, in our context. And so his goal is to reconcile the Jews and Gentiles. Now, here's a little background that you absolutely have to understand. It's one of those little history details that's really important to making sense on why Paul is so charged up about reconciling their differences. So this is a few years after Christ. And the church, there, there are conversions. So there are Jews who are Christians now. There are Gentiles who are Christians now. And in AD 49, Emperor Claudius, now I just went to history, so don't check out. Hold, it, hold on, stick with me. In AD 49, Emperor Claudius saw the church growing, and he's leading one of the biggest empires the world's ever seen. And so he says, you know what, I'm not sure about that. And he begins to an expulsion of the Jews, sending the Jews out of the country in A.D. 49. Well, Paul's writing this letter in A.D. 57, and the Jews who had been kicked out are starting to come back in. But while they were gone, the church continued, the Christian church continued to grow through the Gentiles. So now, this church grew in those eight years or so while they were gone, and now that they're back, You've got Jews and Gentiles all within this Christian church that has been growing. And they have a lot of differences because their entire upbringing was different. Their entire background was different. All their mommies and daddies said different things to them growing up than the other one's mommies and daddies. And all the way as far back as you can go. So the differences were significant because now the Jews had come back into the church in Rome and they were hanging out together and break, trying to sit at the same dinner table and trying to come to corporate worship together and just being very, very different. Everything that was familiar to one was not familiar to the other. Imagine how weird it is when you go to someone's house for dinner and you've never been there before, and sometimes it smells funny, and sometimes they cook food that you think is like, I wouldn't have cooked that. And sometimes you're looking around and you're you're thinking, I'm not used to this. Man, I I need to get out of my comfort zone. Those are little things where you can get a taste of what it's like if you've ever gone to another country. You see them do things, and you just, that is bizarre. Why would they do that? Like, why would they cook that? That's not food, or whatever. Or we shouldn't all eat it with our hands, or whatever. But, but there's things that are bizarre. Well, those are very small examples compared to the differences between the Jews and Gentiles. So this is part of what Paul's wanting to do. He has to reconcile those differences. But in order to do that, he has to first get the Jews and Gentiles to trust him. Because both of them have great reason not to trust Paul. The Jews are looking at Paul and saying, didn't you used to be a Jew? Are you a turncoat? Are you a traitor? And the Gentiles are looking at Paul going, didn't you used to be a Jew who killed us for being who we are? And that's who Paul wants to go and play conflict reconciliation with, the Jews and the Gentiles, of whom both don't trust him. So he has to get them to trust him. So the first words that he shares are very, very important if he wants to gain their trust. And then he wants to establish the church in Rome as a healthy sending church, because a healthy church in Rome means a healthy church in Spain and other areas. In the same way, we want to be a healthy church here so that when we send out people to a mission field going somewhere to either plant churches or to do work around the globe, we know that it needs to be healthy here so that it will be healthy there. And then, just to top it off, he has to do all of this in a very intensely pagan culture where like, even the architecture has things about Roman and Greek gods and goddesses and worshiping of, of creatures and worshiping of nature. So, pretty lofty set of goals. If you've ever like, sat and looked at your goals, they're probably not as crazy, insane, lofty as this guy's goals. So look at Romans 1.1. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel. That's where we were in that second sermon. Paul knows that the only way to accomplish any or all of these very ambitious goals is the gospel. The gospel is Paul's introduction, it is his identity, and it is his plan for ministry. Paul reveals that for him, commitment to the gospel meant understanding himself as a servant of Christ. He was called to be an apostle. None of you were called to be apostles, but he was called to be an apostle. And he was called by God to be set apart for the gospel. And remember, when we say gospel, we're not just talking about the part of, about Jesus, right? I hope y'all remember this, because anytime the word gospel falls upon your ears, I want you to think creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Sometimes you use repetition to emphasize something that you want people to remember. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Please don't forget that, because that is the gospel. It doesn't just start with Jesus. 
It goes all the way back to creation. Because we need Jesus because we're fallen. We can only know that we're fallen if there was a design before our fall that was right. And then it's not just get Jesus and you're done. It's the point is that we, we will all be brought together with the Lord in eternity. So creation, fall, redemption, consummation. So Paul knows, man, if I have any hope for this church to be what it's supposed to be, I'm going to have to stick to the gospel. I can't stray from it. And that brings us to our main point of the morning. If you're taking notes, when someone says it's the main point of the morning, that's what you write down. To be committed to the gospel, you must never forget it is of God. Those two little words, of God, are where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Honestly, the first hundred times I read these verses, I just kind of skipped over the of God, thinking it was sort of like just a, uh, a, a little thing he just tagged on, an afterthought, the gospel of God. Um, it flows, it falls off the tongue easily, and I didn't realize the deep and profound points that he is including when he says, of God. Paul's not wasting any words. He's being very intentional, and we're not straining out a gnat by spending the majority of our morning looking at of God. Here's why. We're going to look at of God, and then we're going to look at the second verse. That's going to be our roadmap for the morning, in case you wonder where we're going. Of God indicates the nature, the aim, and the origin of the gospel that Paul is committed to as he writes the church in Rome. I'm going to say that again. Of God indicates the nature. I mean, if you're trying to understand something, the nature, the aim, and the origin of it will help you to understand it. Paul's saying, I want to be real clear. The of God indicates the nature, the aim, and the origin of the gospel that Paul's committed to. Remember, this is the means by which Paul is trying to gain trust. This is Paul's resume. This is Paul's hope to have a standing with the church in Rome. So why is this notable? Our first point, as I just said, is the nature of the gospel. God is unchanging. His gospel is unchanging. If it's the gospel of God, it's an unchanging gospel because God is unchanging, so His gospel is unchanging. If you're sitting here thinking, come on, more gospel? Yes, more gospel. We're going to dig around in the gospel even more because there's more to seek. Turn to James 1. James chapter 1, it's to your right. If you're in Romans. If you're not in Romans, I have no idea. When he says gospel of God, he shows us the nature of the gospel as it is unchanging because God is unchanging. James 1, look at verse 17. It says, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to to change. You're not constantly having to try to figure God out because He's changing. You have to constantly try to figure God out because you're finite. He is not a changing God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. In fact, Malachi says it even more, more directly in case you're like, well, are you twisting that? Malachi says, I, the Lord, do not change. That's very clear. I, the Lord, do not change. God's goal, uh, we talked about this in our Wednesday night study in Micah, God's goal isn't to be mysterious. God's goal is to be made known. Now, God is mysterious because we're finite creatures, but He's not up there saying, all right, let's turn on the mystery. Maybe they'll figure it out, maybe they won't. He wants to be known by His people. So, to change the gospel of God is to misrepresent God because He does not change. If you change it with the ebb and flow of your feelings or your preferences or cultural norms, you're misrepresenting God because God does not change. And misrepresenting God will always trouble people. Do you, know, do you understand that? You misrepresent God to your coworkers, it, it will trouble your coworkers. If you misrepresent God to your children, that's not going to help your children, it's going to trouble your children. If you misrepresent God to your neighbor because you don't want them to know all the things about God, that's not good. It's going to trouble them. Here's why. Turn back to Romans 1. We're going to look at verse 18. Romans 1, 18. If, if you've ever had a hard time understanding God's wrath, 
I remember when I first started studying Romans, I ran across this wrath thing, and to be totally honest with you, I grew up as a kid of a children's minister in a wonderful children's ministry, but I never really heard anything about God's wrath. Now, that doesn't mean that you know, I grew up in some terrible backwards church. It just means that was a part that was left out. And so as an adult, when we start talking about God's wrath, I was very, very uncomfortable because I'm just thinking, how do I, what do I do with that? He's God. There's no one more powerful. And if he has wrath, is it just random? Is it particular? Can you see it coming? Can you respond to it? What is it against? Why is God ever wrathful? What's the point in that? And Romans 1.18 has helped me to understand this. Remember, we're talking about God is unchanging, and so we don't change his gospel. And this has to be clear because changing the gospel in any way suppresses truth. Suppressing truth is a big deal to God. He wants truth to be shined like a bright light in a dark corner. He wants truth to be made very, very clear no matter what. And so here, we see that suppressing truth is a bad deal. Like, you don't like it when people do it to you. God doesn't like it when people do it with His truth. If someone misrepresents you, you're like, whoa, 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 I didn't say that. Right? God's the same way. If you put words in His mouth, you're making the same mistakes that the Israelites made during the times of the prophets. They would say things like, uh, prophesy to us about beer and wine. We like beer and wine. You prophesy to us about beer and wine. Seriously, that, that's in there. That's in the book of Micah. And so here in Romans 1.18, it says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against unrighteousness, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Suppressing the truth by distorting the gospel draws the wrath of God. That should make you tremble. That should get your attention. No one should hear that and go, hmm, wrath of God. It's a bigger deal than that. So here, suppressing the truth, distorting the gospel, draws the wrath of God. So why do you think Paul is so important about getting the gospel right? Well, Paul is so careful not to distort the gospel And he's careful to bring clarity when others have caused confusion because Paul's aim would be that they would be spared from the wrath of God, not led into it. You don't love people by suppressing truth about God. I don't want them to know that. I don't want them to know that. You don't do that. You don't change it. If you know their preferences and you know God's preferences, you don't put their preferences here and God's preferences down here. That will never help them. That will trouble them. And in fact, suppressing truth is what draws God's wrath. And Paul loves people. Paul has a love for people that goes so far beyond what we normally would think of. He says things in the book of Romans like, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for the sake of my kinsmen. So he's the kind of guy that says, if there was a love that existed to where the ethnic Israelites, my brothers and sisters according to the flesh, where they could be saved and I could go to hell, I would love them that way. That's how much Paul loves people. So here he's saying, I'm not going to suppress truth. I'm not going to distort the gospel. It's of God. It's unchanging. And he knows that changing it, presenting some wrong presentation of it, some distorted version of it, is drawing the wrath of God. He doesn't want to lead people into that. So how were they potentially disturbing or distorting the gospel in Rome? Look at verse 23. Or start in verse 22. This is usually what it looks like when you see distortion of the gospel. You may see it in your own life. You may see it in someone else's. Rest assured, though, as I'm reading this, all of us have a problem with distorting the gospel. Every one of us struggle with distorting that gospel in one way or another. So I'm not just giving you some tips on how to point out people who are doing it wrong, but it's sort of a mirror that we look into and say, okay, maybe I need to check on some of these things. So keep those two things in mind as I read this. Verse 22. How were they changing the unchanging gospel? Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This goes back to the creation part of the gospel. They're distorting the creation part. 
They're distorting it saying, you know what? Maybe there's a creator. Who really cares? Look at creation. Look at the sun. Let's worship the sun. Look at the moon. Let's have a moon goddess. Look at the stars. Let's worship the stars. Look at these physical things. Let's make architecture that reflects the worship of mortal things because you're exchanging truth for a lie. It's a distortion of the gospel. First, they worship mortal creatures by exchanging the immortal for the mortal. This led to impurity, which led to lust of the flesh, which led to unnatural relations, if you keep reading, which leads to debased minds. You can see the problems that come with distorting truth. The Judaizers were distorting the gospel by trying to require circumcision for new believers. That was going on in the church. They were still holding to salvation being Jesus plus something else. Anyone who presents salvation as Jesus plus anything is distorting the gospel. God is unchanging. Our gospel is unchanging. You consider those four parts of the gospel. Anyone who distorts a creator with a plan for his creation distorts the gospel. Have y'all watched the news? No one cares very much about our creator right now. Not many people care very much about our creator right now. You distort that, you're distorting gospel. Anyone who denies that all of humanity fell to sin with Adam and Eve in the garden and thereby denies their own sin problem distorts the gospel. I mean, if you go weeks and weeks and weeks without thinking about your own sin and how you need to be more holy and how, what, what you maybe need to repent from, there's a distortion in your mind about what the gospel really is. As you engage people, that helps you to see what they're distorting. Do you, do you believe you're a sinner? No, I do what I want. Okay, well, that's a starting point. Weave gospel into that conversation. Anyone who scoffs at the idea that Christ took on flesh and brought redemption through his life, his death on the cross, the resurrection, that person distorts the gospel. They scoff at Christ and the, resur- the redemption that he brought through his work, that's a distor- distortion of the gospel. Anyone who disbelieves a very real eternity for all people, some with God and some away from God, distorts the gospel. As Paul makes his appeal with the gospel of God, He presents an unchanging gospel from the unchanging God. So here's what I want us to see on the end of this first point. Over time, leadership will change. Over time, culture will change. Preferences will change. Your preferences will change. Even regarding things like worship music and attire, your preferences will change over time. Even laws will change, as we have recently seen. Interestingly, laws changed after my first sermon in Romans before I even got to the second one. Laws regarding the very things pertaining to the chapter itself. The gospel does not ever change, and this is the point you need to see clearly. The gospel is as progressive as you were ever meant to be. You hear that? Write that down and think about it. The gospel is as progressive as you were ever meant to be. You don't progress from it. You don't say, yeah, I got the gospel, but look, you don't know people. Or, yeah, I got the gospel, but look, you don't understand business dynamics. And and you think you can progress from the gospel to something a little deeper, a little smarter, a little wiser, a little more discerning. The gospel is as progressive as you were ever meant to be, which brings us to our second point. While the gospel is unchanging in its nature... In its aim, its aim is to change. That's the second point of the morning as we look at the of God part, the gospel of God. While the gospel is unchanging, its aim is change. This is uncomfortable for everybody. Don't act like you're not uncomfortable. When someone says, you need to change, something in all of us bristles. Even, even if we're, they catch us on a humble day, there's something that, oh, man, don't, don't tell me I need to change. I kind of like what I got going here. Paul loves the church in Rome enough to be very honest with them up front. To say that he's been set apart for the gospel of God is to openly confess they need God. It's to openly confess that he believes the Jews and the Gentiles need to change. And this is an important point. The point is this, he will not distort the gospel because it's not God who needs to change. You understand that? Sometimes we'll distort the gospel if we're looking at a situation or we're looking at a people group or we're looking at an evangelism opportunity. And if we distort the gospel, what we're saying is they don't need to change in this situation. God needs to change. God never needs to change to fit your situation. 
He is unchanging. Remember the Malachi verse? I, the Lord, do not change. You change the gospel because you think God needs to change. You've got it backwards. He will not distort the gospel because it's not God who needs to change. It's them. His goal of Rome being a healthy sending church will only be attained if the members of the church change to be more like God. Jews and Gentiles will only learn to worship together if they become more like God, not more like each other. That's what they want. If you will just become more like us, we can get along. You do that in your marriage, right? Spouse, if you just be more like me, you think like me, you feel like me, if your emotions aren't all weird out there and they're just, you know, man-ish like my emotions, we'll be fine, right? You look at your children. Children, if you will just act like an adult, I will not have to correct you. But we're getting to the part about us. We're not there yet. So, Jews and Gentiles will only learn to worship together if they become more like God. Paul was not set apart for their temporary happiness. Remember that first verse, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel. He wasn't set apart for their temporary happiness. He wasn't set apart for their whims and their desires. Paul wasn't set apart to squeeze and stomp on the gospel to make it say what people preferred. He was set apart for their holiness, which could only be realized through the gospel of God. Now, I want you to consider this. This is a little bit of what does it say to us, but it's fitting, I think, right here. It's not our disapproval that brings change in another's life. Your disapproval is not what brings change in other people's lives. It's the gospel that brings change. But I want you to really think about that, because I think some of us, whether we want to admit it or not, try our hand in evangelism like that. You see a bunch of drunks, or you see people making bad decisions, or you hear someone cussing, and you just, I disapprove of you, thinking somehow that's a wonderful evangelistic effort. Your disapproval doesn't bring change to another's life. It's the gospel. How often do Christians sit in disapproval of an unbelieving world? If they don't know Jesus, why are you surprised they're cussing? If they don't know Jesus, why are you surprised that they're drunk? Why are you surprised that they're immoral in a number of different ways? You struggle with some of those same things, and you know Jesus. Come in low, but come in rightly. We sit in disapproval of an unbelieving world, thinking that somehow the world might look at us and end our disapproval and say, I better turn to God. They don't like this. Or how often, let's make it a little more personal, how often do Christian parents simply heap guilt and shame upon their children thinking that somehow it's their disapproval that will cause change? Do you get to the part about the gospel when you're disciplining your kid? Or do they think that they're hopeless and not redemptive? In evangelism and in parenting, which I would say is a form of evangelism within the home, you have to stick to the gospel. It's the thing that brings change, not your disapproval. Consider Paul. Like, really, consider this setting. Paul is serving the church in Corinth. Guys, they're getting drunk on the Lord's Supper. They're having fistfights at worship. They're taking one another to court and making a mockery of the church. How easy would it be for Paul to be, like, wrapped up in just a ton of disapproval? I'm not saying he approved but his, his disapproval wasn't the main thing. Consider with the Jews and the Gentiles. He could have found a million reasons to express personal disapproval of the Jews and Gentiles. He was good at being both. Paul was one of those few people that was good at being both. He could have despised when things were wrong. That, that's what happens when you read your Bible a lot. Sometimes you see things that are wrong and you, you want to despise it because you know the way it's supposed to be. Your marriage isn't supposed to be like that. That's stupid. You're not supposed to treat your children like that. That's dumb. You're not supposed to treat strangers like that. That stranger could be an, an angel you're entertaining according to Scripture. What are you doing? Just put some gas in their car. Be nice. Like what we're seeing here is that he was good at being a Jew and a Gentile. He could have despised things. I'm sure he did despise things when they were wrong. But, but why he starts out with the gospel is that this is much bigger than Paul's emotions. We have to keep our emotions in check. Emotions can serve truth. They're supposed to serve truth, not confuse truth. So 
Paul here knows it's bigger than just his emotions. This is why he returns to the gospel of God, which precedes his emotions. It precedes his apostolic ministry. It precedes his Jewishness. The gospel aims to bring change, and we must remember that it's only through the gospel that the right kind of change will occur. Which brings us to our third point on its origin. When you say gospel of God, it clarifies the origin of the gospel because the gospel has been and will be twisted. I want you to hear that. That's important. It's important for you to know because anytime someone says gospel, you have to keep listening. Anytime someone says gospel, you need to listen because what they're saying may not actually be gospel. It may be a distortion of it. Turn over to Galatians. There's a lot of parallels between Galatians chapter 1 and Romans chapter 1. Galatians is right before Ephesians and right after 2 Corinthians. Galatians 1, 6 through 9, this is Paul again. So if you can get some insight into a scripture by seeing it from the same author, that's a good thing. And so this is Paul. In Galatians 1, 6, he says this to the church in Galatia. I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. He wants them to know, I'm astonished. Not because I'm emotionally upset and can't get my stuff together, because what you've done regarding the gospel. You've turned to a different gospel. And then he goes on to say, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. This letter was likely written almost a decade before the letter to Rome. You know, Christ's ministry was a little over 30 years on earth. And so this letter was written within a decade or so after that. And then the letter to Rome was written a decade later. So we know that this distorting of the gospel, as we see here in Galatians, is not an abnormal thing. It's not uncommon. We know that it's a common problem that Paul has to address in the beginning of every communication with every one of these new young churches. When you're new, sometimes the best thing you can, sometimes you think the best thing is to act like what you're bringing is new. So if it's a new church or a new, like, new business, we're doing something no one's ever done before. Well, when you hear that at a church, run the other way. Because if they're doing something that's never been done before, they have lost their minds and turned from the gospel of God, which is unchanging. This is, this is blow your mind because no one's ever done it this way. You haven't cornered the market by finding something new. The way that we corner the market in church is by doing it the way it was always intended to be done. Go to the beginning. Go to creation. Creator. Go to a design. Go to a fall. Go to a need for redemption. Go to a reality of consummation and everything being brought back together. That's how you do it right. But here, apparently a common problem that he has to deal with in these young churches is the gospel being distorted. So here's what I'm looking at. Within just a few short years after Christ's resurrection, people were distorting the gospel. So this begs the question, why would you do that? Like we've been talking about it all morning, but why would you do that? Why would you distort the gospel? The question I was thinking about this morning as I was driving in and thinking over these details was, why would you ever accept the gospel of Christ if you felt a need to change or modify it? Like that's a, that's a good question for us to consider. Why would you ever accept the gospel if you felt, you know what, I like that, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change it a little bit. I don't like the, the judgment part or the wrath part or whatever other part, and I'm going to change it. Why would you ever accept gospel if you felt the need to change it or to modify it? And here is what I think. For the Jews, the gospel meant trusting someone else's work for salvation rather than adherence to the law. For the Jew, gospel meant trusting someone else's work as opposed to your own work. It meant something of the Spirit as opposed to something of the flesh, which seems, I'm sure, a little bit less sure if that's what your dad and your granddad and your great-granddaddy and everyone else has always told you. So for the Jews, there was change, it was hard. And for the Gentiles, there was change that was hard. It meant trusting the work of a God who you and all of your forefathers have been alienated from. And the Jews always told you that. 
The Jews always let you never forget you're not of God. And they would judge. You couldn't sit at particular tables. You couldn't go in particular buildings because you weren't a Jew. So it was different for each of them, but for both of them, the thing they have in common is that the gospel means change. The gospel means change. So everything you knew pre-gospel has been changed by the gospel. When you come to Christ, you don't just have your life and then add a little bit of Jesus to it. Your life changes because of a pervasive movement of the Spirit in your heart that changes your behavior. It's not just behavioral. It's heart because it's a relationship with the Lord. Everything you knew pre-gospel has been changed by the gospel. And apparently the human beings of earth in first century A.D. were resistant to change. Can you guys imagine such a people not liking things being different? The first Sunday I came to Crosspoint in 2003 as a fly on the wall to figure out, God, are you calling us to Greenville, Texas? I walk in, don't get greeted. You better love our greeting ministry. They'll greet you. Um, I didn't get greeted. However, there was a lady with her husband right in front of us. And she says, honey, there's someone in our seats again. Yeah, yeah, low point, right? However, it's just indicative of how we're so resistant to change. She, she liked her seat, so much so that it had become her seat. And so much so that even the seat inhabited by these visitors was problematic. Guys, we do stuff like this all the time. Uh, you, churches will split over the color of the paint on the walls because we don't like change. We went, I think we had a handful of meetings about the things in here. So everything's like brown or a shade of brown. Congratulations, and there was no church split. It may not be beautiful, but we tried to not allow it to be the main thing. So what I'm saying is that we're resistant to change. They're resistant to change. So if the gospel brings about some changes that you like, like forgiveness, say forgiveness. And some changes that you don't like, like life change, then the easiest solution is to distort the gospel to favor what you favor and reject what you reject. Guys, we have movements, like entire movements on multiple continents that are a a distortion of the gospel because I like the part about being rich but not the part about being poor, so let's distort it to favor what we favor. Things like that happen a lot. And so we have to remember its origin because it, it requires change, as we've already said, and sometimes we don't like change. I think that's why... It's distorted as it is in Galatians. So sometimes the desire for distortion is personal preference that stems from that which is familiar. For the Jews, they would have said, hey, I know the Jewish way of life. I know the law. We do our (coughs) sacrifices, and now you're telling me to bring a sacrifice of praise, but I got this livestock that I think is better. And the Gentiles are saying, okay, we've never been a part of that. We come to worship now. That's great. We love God. Thank you for Jesus. We distort it because we like doing things the way they've always been done. That was my first question when I first came to Crosspoint. Why do we do it that way? Because it's the way it's always been done. And about four weeks in, it was like, we can't use that as the answer anymore. It's not a good answer because it's the way we've always done it. And my granddaddy said, and my great-granddaddy said, okay, great. Maybe they're fallible. Maybe they're not saints. Maybe, they're, maybe there's another way. Maybe you can have different beliefs in the same faith. Maybe we don't die on every blessed hill because we have grace with one another. Soapbox. I'm getting off the soapbox. So sometimes the desire for distortion is personal preference because things are familiar to you. You like them the way they are, and the gospel makes you change that. However, other times it comes from good old-fashioned people-pleasing, apparently. Look at verse 10 in Galatians 1. It, actually, I'm going to read the part right before it because it's, it should grab your attention. It's not that there is another one, but there are some who would trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul just said, if an angel comes into your stinking backyard and preaches a gospel contrary to what we have here from the Lord, let that angel be accursed. Paul is serious about not distorting the gospel. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And then he says this, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Which one is it, guys? Am I called here to seek your approval or God's approval? Because if it's God's, maybe sometimes you're not going to be happy because it means change. But if I'm always trying to make you happy, 
we must expect God to change. He's saying, am I, am, am I seeking the approval of man or God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. There are a bunch of people pleasers in this room that need to hear that verse. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now that does not give you the right to be a big fat jerk to anybody. Some are like, all right, sweet, I'm tired of pleasing people. I'm going to tell them how I think it is, and I'm going to put it out there, and I'm going to you know, smack them around a little bit. No, that's not what we're talking about. He's saying you serve Christ and not be a people pleaser, and there's a way to do that. This is distorting the gospel. This distortion of the gospel is apparently often done by those preaching it. He's saying there's, this gospel that I preached is different from the gospel that others are preaching to you. So it's not just a problem within the citizens, but it's a problem with those who are doing the preaching. Good old-fashioned people-pleasing. The distortion of the gospel is apparently done by those preaching it, and the reason for them to distort the gospel was textbook consumerism. I'm gonna, uh, yeah, we're going to talk about this because we live in a consumeristic culture. It's all about getting what I want when I want it. Somehow, my Facebook tells me things that I didn't know I told Facebook. That happened to any of y'all? I bought a vehicle... And the next day, it was advertising the vehicle I just bought. That's straight up creepy. I don't even know how they did that. But, but that's the kind of culture we live in where you want to get something right in front of you and let, oh, let's you know, write what we want when we want a textbook consumerism. So here's the issue. When you have an entitled congregation who wants it their way, you distort the gospel so that they are not discomforted by the reality of it. When you have an entitled congregation that wants it this way, the preacher of the gospel distorts the gospel so that the people who he's trying to please aren't distorted by the reality of it. If you find yourself in a place where you're saying, I don't want to be distorted by the reality of the gospel, that's very problematic. Preachers will begin to change if they're people pleasers. Bold ones will speak truth and try to change you because it's not God who needs to change. So the reason to distort the gospel is I don't want you to be discomforted by the reality of the gospel. This is what happens when your highest aim is no longer to please God. So sadly, apparently, Paul has to deal with many preachers whose highest aim is to keep their job. Did you know that there are pastors who have lost their job for telling their people the truth? There are pastors who have lost their job for telling the people the truth in a way they didn't want to hear it. It's not what you said, it's how you said it. Paul has to deal with pastors whose highest aim is to keep their job, or pastors whose highest aim, preachers whose highest aim is to keep their friendships and their relationships the way they like them. Well, I don't want to say that because I know that's going to have an effect on Jim over there, and I don't want Jim to be uncomfortable, so I'm not going to say that from the pulpit. That's a terrible idea. You're not being a good preacher in that moment. So, or their highest aim is to just have a bigger congregation. Did you know that biblically success is not always judged by numbers? There is an entire book of the Bible dedicated to numbers, and it's called Numbers. However, one man plants, one man waters, and only God gives the growth. If you deem yourself a church growth expert, one man plants, one man waters, God gives the growth. So if you're trying to grow your church, plant water. Let God do what He does. How how can you say a church is too small? How can you say church is too big? God gives the growth. And if you begin to take credit for the growth and try to package it so that if you do this, you can break the 300 level, you can break the 500 level, you can break the 900 level. When you break the 900 level, you can admit through this many staff members. Blah, 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 blah. I, get, I get publications all the time about church growth. And it's funny, because only God gives the growth. You plant and water. I should be getting publications about planting and watering. It's, it's a different approach. So here, if your highest aim is to have a bigger congregation... You don't want to say things that make people uncomfortable because, well, they leave or they go find someone who will tickle their ears and satisfy what they want to hear. So turn back to Romans 1-2. The result in verse 7 of Galatians says there are some who would trouble you. So I want us to make it very clear that distorting the gospel will never benefit people. However, it will always trouble them. Distorting the gospel will never benefit people. It will always trouble them. Always trouble them. Now, verse 2 in Romans 1 says this, and we're going to touch on this some more next week, so we'll just get a little piece of it this week. But it says, The gospel of God, which He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. 
So this tells us the promise of the gospel. We've seen the nature of the gospel, the aim of the gospel, the origin of the gospel, and now we see the promise of the gospel, and it's communicated to us through the prophets. The gospel of God was promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. So the next question to me seems very obvious. What did he promise? What did God promise through the prophets? And luckily, we have answers right here. They're repeated throughout the prophets. And one particular area that sort of captures what's repeated over and over and over again is Jeremiah 31. So turn to Jeremiah 31. For the sake of time, I would love nothing more than to go through and hit prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet and just be very like a Puritan and just drill you over and over again with these repeated things so that you will know they are in fact repeated. But for the sake of time, we're going to look at Jeremiah 31 because it, it sort of draws a good conclusion from that. It summarizes it. Jeremiah 31, 31 says this. This is the promise of the gospel ahead of time. The gospel of God. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. So God's saying, I made a covenant with your fathers and they broke it. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a new covenant and you're not going to break it. It's going to be different. It's, it's going to be a fulfillment of the one that was broken by humans. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make in the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. This is the promise that we're looking for, the promise that was prophesied beforehand regarding the gospel of God, and this is the promise. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his own neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. I hope we're not church people who are so inundated with church language that that promise didn't knock you out of your seat. It's remarkable what God promises ahead of time. He knows it'll be fulfilled in Christ. They're awaiting a Messiah. People will have to change. Something in our hearts will have to change because a law that we go and look for written down somewhere isn't doing the job. People broke the covenant. God's going to continue it. He's going to fulfill it in the Lord. This is the repeated promise throughout the prophets. So to understand the gospel of God, we need to understand the nature of this promise. And the five things that you just saw are this. One, the law will be inside of his people written on their hearts. That means when you say, you know what, I don't think it's right for me to do this. That, that's the result of a promise of God regarding his gospel. A law on your hearts that says, hey, maybe we shouldn't do this, even though no one had it written down and was holding it up for you in the moment that you were tempted to sin. That's God's doing, not yours. When you, when you overcome sin and temptation, you don't pat yourself on the back and say, "Woo, man, I was awesome today. You say, thank you, God, for writing something on my heart that tells me not to do that or to do this thing over here. Second, he will be their God and they will be his people. There's a relationship here which results in number three, we shall know him. It's not just about knowing about God. Those in the Old Testament needed someone to go between them and God because they couldn't approach Him. They didn't have Christ. They didn't have that bridge. They had to tell someone who's going to go to God and then they're going to come back and tell them something through prophets. It was a system that was not a close relationship between God and His people personally without something in between. And then Christ was our mediator bringing us to God. That's why it's the gospel of God. We shall know Him. Not only that, it's the least to the greatest. That should be an encouragement to everybody. And he will forgive iniquity and remember sin no more. So for Paul to state up front in his appeal to the church in Rome that he's, he's called to the gospel of God, he's saying to them that his aim for them is much higher than just changed behavior. Paul's goal for the church is not Anything other than that God would do a work in their hearts, teaching them inwardly what it means to know Him, because, to know right from wrong because they know Him. Paul's aim for the church in Rome is not a new set of rules. Paul's aim for the church in Rome is not a new set of regulations. Paul's aim for the church in Rome is not that he would make their mind up for them. We have to remember that when we're ministering to people. You can't make up anybody's mind. God has to bring change. 
You can speak truth. You can do so with gentleness and respect. You can even admonish and push when it's necessary. Never in a way that's unrespectful. Never in a way that's ungentle. You can be bold and be gentle. It goes to, it works. But here, Paul's aim for the church is not just new rules, not just new regulations, not just change behavior, not a new section of society. He doesn't want to make up their minds for them. They're not just a group that isolates from, from everybody else who's wicked, but rather a true relationship between God and them. If you really want people to have a true relationship with God, present the gospel. I mean, you may be going, really? That's the point of your sermon? Yeah, it's the point of my sermon. You want people to know God? Tear the gospel with them. Not your view of it, not your, not your version of it. Don't distort it. While the Jews and Gentiles were obsessed by, with looking at one another throughout all of the letter to the church in Rome, they'd look at one another and the Gentiles say, um, you need to be more like us. You Jews need to be more like us Gentiles. And the, and the Jews are saying, you Gentiles need to be more like us Jews, and they just don't get it. Because Paul's aim is that from the least to the greatest, they would all know God. They had to be more like God through the gospel of God. So the good news here, being a Jew doesn't keep you from God. Being a Gentile doesn't keep you from God. Being a poor, uneducated child does not keep you from God. Being a rich and sophisticated adult does not keep you from God. Sometimes I'm more worried about them. But being an unrepentant sinner is what keeps you from God. And it's only the gospel of God that speaks to that. None of these things about being the least to the greatest will ever keep you or anybody else from God. Your fear for someone would not be that they're too poor to know God. Your fear for someone would not be that they're too rich to know God. Your fear for someone, the thing that would drive you, is the gospel of God, which indicates that it is only unrepentant sinners that are kept from God. Wrath is real. Judgment is real. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation are all very real. But none of them are beyond the reach of God's grace. That's his promise. He's saying, I will have a people with the rise and fall of every empire. I will have a people who will belong to me and I will belong to them. So what does this mean for us? We've touched on it a little bit. Turn to Zechariah. It's to the right. It's probably a little less familiar. This is our last verse for the morning. It's after Habakkuk and Zephaniah, if that helps you. I don't know. Habakkuk, Zephaniah. Oh, sorry, Haggai's in there too, and then Zechariah. Or Haggai. I don't know why they say that. There's not an I before the A. Zechariah 8. Just so you know that it is, in fact, repeated, I'll just go to one more place that says it. Zechariah 8, 7 through 8 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. This is the promise that is repeated throughout the prophets regarding the gospel of God. As much as He is our God, we are His people. Again, if we're used to church language and things like that, that you may be like, yeah, okay, sure, whatever. No, think about it. As much as He is our God, we are His people. There is no gospel of God option where He belongs to us, but we don't belong to Him. There's no gospel of God option where he is always, we are, He's always accessible to us, but we're never available and accessible for Him. There's no gospel of God option where we're allowed to call on Him for things that we need Him to do, but yet He has no room to call on us to do things He wants done. As much as God belongs to us, we belong to Him. It is a, it is a, it is a relationship. That's what the gospel is about, bringing you to God, belonging to one another. So if we belong to God, we'll never change His gospel. Don't change it. That means learning it, continuing digging it. I hope at this point you have realized that the gospel is not just three quick points. 
The gospel is not just five steps. The gospel is not just the Roman road. I hope what you're realizing is that we will continue to dig for weeks into what the gospel is. It is profound. It is deep. It is pervasive. It is reached throughout every generation through the rise and fall of every empire of planet Earth. God's people still exist. If it was a farce, that would be just absolutely bizarre. Like, what a bizarre thing that happened, just happenstance. There's still God's people. God's people still exist because the promise is related to His gospel. It's beautiful. It should, it should encourage us to continue to dig and want to understand what God wants of us and how we can actually serve other people with the gospel. If we belong to God, we should aim to be changed by His gospel. That's the second thing. The first, if we belong to God, we'll never change His gospel. Two, if we belong to God, we should aim to be changed by His gospel. Don't ever wake up one morning and say, I'm good now, I'm done, fully sanctified. That's, that's not a reality for anyone who's alive. If you have a borrowed breath, it is borrowed so that you can become more like Christ. That will only happen if you stick to the gospel of God. The third thing is if we belong to God, we will never forget its origin. We will never forget the origin of the gospel. Guys, marriage is a great example. There, I, I'm going to a wedding ceremony today, so it's fresh on my mind. You can go through an entire preparation. You can hire all these things. And there are many people who act like marriage is their idea. Many. There are many people who act like that relationship and even that ceremony was their idea, that they came up with it. So I'll have whatever colors I want, whatever cake I want, and whatever lighting I want, and whatever songs I want, and never give one thought to the God of marriage. It's easy to see that. It's easy to run across that. But if we belong to God, we'll never forget the origin of the gospel, the origin of truth. It precedes the existence of any one of our preferences. If we consider its origin, it precedes the existence of any Jew, any Gentile. The gospel of God precedes the existence of any culture and any law. We will guard against suppressing the truth in any way because we should deeply desire people to be spared from God's wrath. You should care about that. We should love God first and others rightly by never assuming that it's God who needs to change. And if we ever feel like the truth about God will be bad for people, you must reconsider in the moment. If someone's telling you something and you realize, oh, you don't understand God, but then you, the next thing you think is, but if I tell you this about God, it's going to be bad for you. Stop in that moment and reconsider what you just thought. Because there's nothing that we could ever tell someone about God that would be bad for them. There's no part of God that you need to hide. Don't ever hide any part of God from your children, from your coworkers, from your neighbors, from your spouse. Don't hide. There's no part about God that needs to change or be hidden. If you think it's bad for people, you have to reconsider. And if we feel led to hide realities about God, we must repent. You need to change, not Him. And then you need to present to the person you're talking to how they might change because He doesn't need to change. When truth is twisted, we must correct the distortion. And if we ever are pressured to reconsider our ways as outdated and old-fashioned, we must remember it is the truth that will endure. I have a little brother who's 10 years younger than me, and boy, we think about things differently. I'm not in my 80s, but I'm certainly viewed sometimes as old-fashioned. And sometimes I am, because I don't like his music or something like that. However, when it comes to the gospel, if you're ever pressured to reconsider your gospel because it's outdated and old-fashioned, you have to remember its origin. It came from God, and truth will endure, because God endures and He is unchanging. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11 as we take the supper. 1 Corinthians 11. This morning we've seen... The nature of the gospel, the aim of the gospel, the origin of the gospel, and the promise of the gospel. And I think it prepares us really well to take the supper. Um, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered, delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup, and after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant, the promised covenant of the gospel of God that you heard about in all of the prophets, in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Gospels all over the supper. The supper is a great example of what we do with the gospel. When we take the supper, we're weakly acknowledging we received it from God. This was not your idea. So if you don't like the taste of the juice, get over it. It wasn't even juice to begin with, or tortillas for that matter. Don't die on every hill. It's not worth it. But the supper is a great example of what we do with the gospel. We're weakly acknowledging that we receive it from God and deliver it to other people. We receive it from God and deliver it to other people. I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you. What do I have to deliver to you? What I receive from God. When it comes, what do I have for you in the way of the gospel? What I receive from God. What are we acknowledging when we take the supper? That which we received from God. It's all about remembrance of God's faithfulness throughout all of the ages. Through the rise and fall of every empire that ever existed, through the ebb and flow of every cultural preference that ever changed, this is a consistent thing that God's people have done. And remember, it's not just remembrance. We take this until he comes back. That's the consummation part. So the gospel is all over the supper. And as we, as we distribute the elements this morning, I want you guys to consider, are you thinking in terms of gospel like this? In what ways does your view of the gospel maybe need to be rounded out by the scripture this morning? Let's pray. Lord, we love you very much. Lord, I will confess this morning, I just feel like there's a lot to say, and I kind of feel like we could keep going for a couple hours, but I, I, I trust your word, and I trust your design, and I trust your time for us this morning. And so, Lord, my, my prayer right now, as we take the supper, is that you would find people who are true to, to you. I pray that as we distribute these elements, that each of us would consider in what ways are we holding our own preferences in higher regard than God's truth? In what way are we allowing others' preferences to be ranking higher than God's truth? And help us to see that it's your timeless gospel that has always been the answer to the questions. It's always been the way of salvation. Lord, help us to remember that our story is the story of a people. These aren't all our new ideas. We're a part of a timeless thing that's been going on for ages. And we will be a part of it until Christ comes again. We humble ourselves before you as we take the supper and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.